So we finished up John last week, and um, I want to preach a few sermons on the church. What is the church is the title of these sermons. And uh, I'm motivated to preach, well, I'm motivated to preach on this, what is the church, fundamentally because I don't think the church is what it used to be, and I don't think we consider the church as seriously as we ought. The church, this local body, the church, what does it mean for us? What what is the importance of it? Why does it seem that we treat the church like we treat picking a discount club? Is it going to be Costco? Is it going to be Sam's Club? Or is it going to be, you know, Amazon Prime? You know, that's sort of how we, that's sort of how we approach the church. And and, um, and that, that's not just in the choice of the church, but it's how we live in the church, how we're connected to the church, or how disconnected we are from our local bodies. And I, I think this will be a fight all the, you know, as many, as many years as the Lord gives me to preach, this will be a fight for me in changing the view you have of the importance of the church. I just don't think we properly consider it. So hopefully these sermons will help and will help me and will move us from point A to point B. So begin here with a little Reformation history. I'm a, a week late. October 15th or October 31st, 1517. We all know what happens. Martin Luther makes a public notice of all of his difficulties with the church. Right? He, he needs to rant about the Roman Catholic Church. And so he invited the entire city, right, by, by pounding this thing to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, he was inviting the city to a debate. Um. And so he, not, he knocks this thing onto the, the, the castle doors in Wittenberg. There are 95 theses, there are 95 statements on that posting regarding the unbiblical doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. Luther's intent was not to throw off the church, right? Luther's intent was to throw off an apostate church. Luther's intent ultimately was to reform the church, right? And that's, um, that is what he would spend the balance of his days doing. But think of the church during the time of the Reformation, a church which was selling salvation, selling it. You could buy your salvation by purchasing indulgences, by making pilgrimages, Right? Selling salvation. So if you wanted to get your uncle out of purgatory, well, give the church some money. Give the church some money. They'll say a mass specifically for him. 
and then, you know, it cuts off a certain percentage or a certain number of years. Um, Want to make sure you're doing well? Buy an indulgence. The church was corrupt, and Luther recognized that souls, if that were to continue, souls would be damned and the gospel would be lost entirely, gone. Because it was not the gospel, it was a false gospel. It was a counterfeit that the devil loved. It was a satanic counterfeit. When a church has gone bad, the question of what is the church becomes really important, becomes very necessary. That question was the primary question of the early Reformation. They were forced to ask, what is the church? And other questions that, that related to that. How do you distinguish a true church from a false church? What are the marks of the true church? And today... Given the makeup of our culture, we have to ask the same questions. See, it's the church reformed and always reforming. So, I mean, even the reformers realize that, yeah, we need to, we need to answer these questions, but a generation from now, they're going to have to ask them again, and a generation now, because sin corrupts institutions. Americans in the 21st century have a distinct culture, right? We have a distinctive culture, and that culture affects every one of us, whether for the good or for the bad. Our culture affects the way we think about our institutions it, and the necessity of those institutions, including the church. Now, do you think that individualism affects how we think about the church? Are we an individualistic society? Well, yeah, for the most part. Do you think that the, the predominant evangelical idea that Christianity is only about having a personal relationship with God affects how we think about the church? I mean, that's our predominant paradigm for Christianity. It's having a personal relationship, personal, individual relationship with God. Do you think that affects the way we think about the church? Do you think materialism affects how we think about the church? I know a lot of people who, as soon as the church asks for tithes, thinks they have the church figured out, right? Oh, they're just about... They're just about the money. Do you think postmodern and moral relativism affect how we think about the church? Moral relativism. Right? That everybody basically can concoct their own morality. So why do we need some central hub of, of morality? Like the pulpit of a church. Or the word of God preached. Do you think the social interaction we receive through our devices affects how we view the church? Sherry Turkle calls it being alone together. We're always alone together. Right? You've, you've gone to Cracker Barrel and seen the whole family around the table and everybody's on their phones. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was my family. Right? We have this weird idea of 
I mean, it's just reprogramming our brains, right, about what social interaction really is. Do you think our understanding of authority affects our view of the church? Do we have a healthy relationship with authority, generally speaking? Oh, we love it. It's good. We, we're, we're thankful to have people looking out for us. Yeah, right. Get pulled over by a cop and I'm going to, I want a recording in your vehicle. Do you think our fixation on entertainment affects how we think about the church? You know what worship's got to be like? Do you think, you know, technology with social networking affects how we think about the church? Do you think the breakdown of the family and divorce affects how we think about the church? Do you think the the uh, prominence of parachurch ministry literally beside the church, right, affects how we understand the church. I mean, they're rich, filthy rich parachurch ministries. They scoff at the church and her, her lack of money. Do you think today's failures and abuses within the church Right, different than Martin Luther's day, but equally unbiblical, affect how we think about the church. Do you think the death of fatherhood and our view of masculinity as toxic affects how we think about the church? Do you think our view of Christian discipleship and it essentially being a choose-your-own-adventure book right? Christian discipleship is sort of, I get to, I'll I'll determine the path. Does that affect our view of the church? And of course, all these things affect our view of the church. Do you think our view of the Word of God and it preached affects our view of the church? And all of these things affect our view of the church. Mostly negatively. All of the things I've mentioned are changing our views of the church and pressuring us. We just have immense pressure to dispense with one of God's most glorious provisions in this life, which is the church. Your parachurch ministry on campus is not a church. It's not. It never was. Theoretically, it was never meant to be, but they've come to embrace that more and more as they perform the sacraments somehow without ordained men, right? But parachurch ministries are filling that gap, some of which encourage their, their students to go to churches and others that just, you know, take over that authority. But think about it. The church is one of... God's most glorious provisions in this life. The church. The church was created by God for his people. Costco was not. It was created by men for all of us to get delightful samples. Our view of the church today is unbiblical, it is weak, it is wimpish, it is confused. 
And that should change. That needs to change for all of us. Are you praying that God will work through His Holy Spirit to continue the work of reforming the church? Do you pray about that? Do, do you care about the church? If you care about it, well, I'll finish with that. I'll save that for the end. There are three ways. If I forget the one, well, there are three ways that I can prove whether or not you care about the church. If we're not praying that God reform and continue to reform His church, then God will be pleased to just send her into exile as he has done before, right? There's a statement by the early church father Cyprian that Calvin echoes, which speaks to the importance and position of the church. Remember this. The paraphrase would be this. The man who won't have the church as his mother may not have God as his father. The man who won't have the church as his mother will not have God as his father. actually may not have God as his father. Now, why was it important for early reformers to hold to such a high view of the church? First, it was biblical, and they knew that. There's no getting around it if it's biblical. Second, to an uninformed observer, it looked like the reformers were throwing off the church and breaking away from the Roman Catholic behemoth. But they were not throwing off the church. They were, th they were throwing off abuses in the church. They were, th they were th reforming the church, attempting to strengthen the church. They wanted to return the church to her apostolic biblical authority. And they came to understand that the Roman church was elevating the authority and traditions of man rather than the authority of the word of God. They had corrupted the church, substituting God's authority with man's authority. Blah! Disgusting. That should make every one of you want to vomit. Throwing off God's authority and replacing it with man's authority? Ugh. Ugh. They had corrupted the church, substituting God substituting God's authority with something terrible. And the Reformers, our forefathers in the faith, not the Roman Catholics, are the ones who believe that the church was the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, as we just read in the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy. That statement I said earlier, the man who won't have the church as his mother, may not have God as his father, is not very popular today, and not very popular among those who profess to follow Jesus. You constantly hear people trample on the church who profess to believe in God, believe in Jesus, who call themselves Christians, don't you? You constantly hear people trample on the church, don't you? Don't you? Can I get some head nods and some amens? constantly hear them. I believe in Jesus, but I don't go for what? Organized religion. 
Yeah, you prefer disorganized religion. Organized around your disorganized brain and whatever pops into it. Have you ever heard anybody say these things? Do you know someone who professes to follow Christ but refuses to attend church? I think we all have people in that category that we're working on. Uh, that person won't come near a church because he had a bad experience at a church, because he lived through a church split that was particularly nasty, or because the pastor may have loved him too well, if you get my drift, by being concerned for his soul by warning him to start loving his wife or to stop looking at pornography or to get a job. That dismissive attitude toward the church is all too common, particularly among those who claim to have a personal relationship with Christ. Particularly. I mean, I probably... It's easy to say that there are probably more pagans that like church than this category. Those claiming to have a real personal relationship with Christ who, who hate the church. The basic understanding of the church today, and many of you believe this to be true, though you may not say it, is that the church is nice but not necessary. It's nice. It's nice. It's nice, you know, it's a nice thing. It's a nice thing to have. You know, the ritual of going to church for two hours a week, it's great, it's nice. It's a nice thing to do. Um, you know, it's, it's a nice, it's nice like a, a 70 degree day, is, it's nice. We can sit under the ministry of the Word by reading at home for a few minutes when we are falling asleep. Why would we need this? We can fellowship with other believers by meeting them for a meal at the newest, you know, taco joint. We can, um, we can tithe by giving our money to missionaries and radio programs and Campus Crusade and InterVarsity. We can, we can be taught God's Word by reading the latest books by the best-selling Christian authors, R.C. Sproul included, who have amazing credentials and ability to communicate way beyond the schmuck in the pulpit today. We can learn God's Word by purchasing a Gospel Transformation Bible, which is chock full of notes from great and well-connected pastors, you know, with, with very big churches and tall steeples, who are wonderful scholars, and they are smart guys with terminal degrees. We can even have accountability with our best friends. We can have a mountaintop spiritual experience by attending retreats at cushy retreat centers. We can have transforming times of devotion by attending conferences where the speakers are actually eloquent and often have Scottish accents. We can love others by volunteering at the soup kitchen each week. We can hear good preaching by logging on to sermon audio and searching for 
a good Scottish accent. There are good Scottish preachers. But if there was a terrible one, you would listen to them because of that accent. I guarantee you, it'd sound like John Knox was speaking to you. We can sing in our hearts to God with the help of Christian radio. We can worship God by taking hikes in nature. It, it, you know, it, it gets a little more tricky when you need that dastardly pastor for a baptism, a wedding, or a funeral. And then it's like, oh, hmm, how can I finagle my way into this church? Ugh. But it's easy to find some unscrupulous pastor who will do it for a certain fee, right? No, no need to have any connection to the church to get those three things done. I mean, he'll privately give you the Lord's table for a fee. You know, just cover his travel expenses. See, we can get everything we need spiritually from outside the church. And it's on my terms. And it's at my convenience. And it's more often, right, because it's on my terms and not on the church's terms. And why do they keep scheduling things at 7 o'clock at night? I mean, I have to put my kids down. I know I'm laying it on really thick. And I am mocking you. And I'm mocking myself. The church, we reason, is unnecessary. Nothing special here. I can consume everything I would get here somewhere else. All the spiritual pursuits that are commended in Scripture can be found elsewhere. And with none of the baggage of the church, none of the like... Are they going to talk to me of the church or none of the, like, do I have to talk to them of the church? The ministry of the Holy Spirit, we believe, is pure outside the church. It's pure. It's more intense. It's more gripping. There is an example of this attitude that the church is unnecessary that sticks out in my head. Early in my tenure at this church, there was a man who, who was asked to follow the direction of the elder board. Okay? <laughs> he was asked to follow the direction of the elder board and live in peace with the decision that the entire elder board made, though he disagreed with. And when asked if he could yield to his brothers to submit to the will of the board, he said, I submit to God alone. I submit to God alone. And all of us are thinking, well, man, that sounds really pious. I mean, wouldn't that be what every Christian should say? I submit to God alone. God alone is the Lord of the conscience. It's the first of the preliminary principles of the book of church order. Right? That statement, I submit to God alone, is the statement of the one who thinks the church is unnecessary. 
that God does not delegate any authority outside of himself. Right? It only takes a few further questions to point out the misunderstanding of that statement, I submit to God alone. Well, what if God asked you to submit to someone else? Would you then submit to God? Because that's what he does in his word. Obey your leaders and submit to them as those who keep watch over your soul. Well, that's a tough one. So now, do you only submit to God or do you only submit to yourself? Does God ask you to submit to others? Of course he does. Who? Who? That would be my question for him. Who? And be very specific here. Who? Well, we'll come back to that after we've traveled down the road a bit. But to say I submit to God alone is false piety and is simply expressing this. The church is unnecessary and without authority in my life. The church, which is the household of God and the pillar and foundation of the truth. The bride of Christ, created by God for his people. Unnecessary. It's just unnecessary. Now here's a question. Is that what the early reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, were saying? Were they rebels who stood up in the church saying, I submit to God alone. Not to the Pope. No. They were unwilling to submit to a church that was selling salvation. They were unwilling to submit to an apostate church. In other words, a church that was taking the place of the Savior who gives salvation as a gift. And as I said earlier, the primary concern was the church. That's what the reformers were concerned about. They, you know, seeing the church as necessary, they were concerned to have a pure church, a church where there was biblical preaching and proper administration of the sacraments and and true pastoral discipline. Their concern was to prove that the church was to be a blessing to those added to her number. They did what they did because they understood what God had called the church to be in this world. They did what they did because, because they viewed the church as necessary. Necessary. Today we don't understand the importance of the church. The church is simply a social group. The church is like a country club. The church is like a membership at something. The church is like citizenship in a a nation. No, it is nothing like that. It is vastly more important than that. We recoil when we hear a statement like Cyprian's, right? The man who won't have the church as his mother may not have God as his father. And we've built a system where we can be fed or we assume we're being fed outside the church. And so we've got this perfectly Americanized Christianity. We've individualized it. We've atomized it. We've consumerized it, right? And the, the organized type of Christianity, the, the church type Christianity is just not necessary. It's just relic of a past age. It's not even cool. It's totally uncool. I mean, look at the color of the carpet in here. Totally uncool. The walls are mint green throughout. 
Anybody in, I'm not going to ask it. Anybody have mint green <laughs> walls in their houses? <laughs> um, now, what is the result of such an approach to the church? It's this, everyone will do what is right in his own eyes. That's the result. Everyone will do what is right in his own eyes. Everyone will be by themselves in a wilderness determining that what they're doing at the current moment is what is right. We have more churches than ever because every solitary individual is a church of one. I'm the first church of Andrew Dion. You know, and then there's the first church of Ben Gulick. And the first church of Maggie Dion. The first church of David Wolf. The first church of Claudio Molina. And the marks of those churches are pure private devotions and the exercise of self-discipline and the sac well who cares about the sacraments they're empty symbols what matters is my heart right American Christianity views the church as unnecessary and even impotent, right? And the church has responded by saying, you know what? You're right. (laughs) We'll chuck our authority out the window. We're happy to. We'll just chuck it out the window. What would you like today? Would you like feel-good messages? Well, you got it, right? You got it. Um... Good-looking pastors broadcasting from some other location, you got it. We'll give it to you, right? No more talk of sin, hell, and judgment, you got it. It's yours, right? No more scripture which keeps stepping on my toes and on the toes of drunks and homosexuals and adulterers and money worshipers and idolaters. You got it. You got it. No more prying into my life, you've got it. We didn't like to do that anyway. You've got it. No more overbearing church discipline. (sighs) Perfectly happy to give that up. It's no wonder we think the church is unnecessary because the church has made herself unnecessary. The church has done it. The church has given away all of her strength. Right, but, but how does God view the church? What does he say about the church in his word? In the passage I read earlier, he says that the church is his household. He lives there. He lives there. That's yeah, unnecessary. It's just where God lives. It's his household. It's his people. In other words, the church constitutes the family of God. Calvin says of this verse, not only has he received us to be his children by the grace of adoption, but he also dwells in the midst of us. He dwells in the midst of the church.
and you're saying, well, doesn't, doesn't God dwell in the midst of a, a meeting of campus outreach? Not in the way he does in the church. No, sir. Not in the way he does in his household. He dwells in the midst of us. God's special fatherly presence exists in the church. And this is why we use the language of brothers and sisters when we get together in this local manifestation of his church. We talk to the members as brothers and sisters. The world wants to talk about some universal brotherhood of man, right? But they have no head of household. They have no father. So they are bastard children who concoct some sort of loose connection with one another, whereas we are actually connected in Christ to one another. Why do we, though, want to be leaving the household? Why do we think it better to be out of God's household? Now, what else does God say about the church? He says that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Now, what does that mean, that the church is the pillar and buttress or support of the truth? Again, here's Calvin. The reason why the church is called the pillar of truth is that she defends and spreads it, the word, by her agency. God does not himself come down from heaven to us, nor does he daily send angels to make known his truth, but he employs pastors whom he has appointed for that purpose. To express it in a more homely manner, is the church the mother of all believers? Does she not regenerate them by the word of God, educate and nourish them through their whole life, strengthen and bring them up at length to absolute perfection? For the same reason also she is called the pillar of truth, because the office of administering doctrine, which God has given, has placed in the church's hands, is the only instrument of preserving the truth, that it may not perish from the remembrance of men. The church. That does not exist in the parachurch. That does not exist anywhere else other than in the church. So many people, though, they have never seen God or had a conversation with him, believe that he comes down and visits them individually. Individually. God said so-and-so to me. But he never did that during a sermon. Not once. It's always when you're at home by yourself in the dark. Really. But scripture teaches that God uses means, and the means he uses to communicate his words, his word, is the ministry of the church. The church. What else does God say about the church? In Acts 20, 28, we read this in the midst of an exhortation to the elders of the church. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. The church is the society of those that God has purchased with his blood. Scripture speaks of Jesus' work on the cross as being done for the church. Yes, it's also 
spoken in individual terms, but it also speaks of the blood of Christ specifically being shed for the church. The church. What else? God has specifically given the church things that he does not give to individuals who are off on their own. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. Scripture speaks of the church being a body. Remember that in 1 Corinthians, for the body is not one member, but many, right? And yet, yet we all want to be severed off. We want to be a foot that's not connected to the head or the, a hand that's not connected to the arm. What good is it? has no goodness, has no life. And yet we, we as American Christians have like severed feet and hands and buttocks and knees to spread all over the place. The more unpresentable parts, that's what that means. So many people just want to smell, not realizing they are deaf and blind. So many people just want to see, not realizing they can't smell or hear. So many people just want to taste. But God has made the church a body with Christ as its head. Do you think it is unimportant to hear or see or taste or feel or to do all of those things all at once? If you want to be severed from Christ's body, be a church of one. What else has God said about his church? We learn that the church will be salt and light, a constant testimony to the rulers and authorities of this world. Paul writes, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers. to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, in the church, the combined witness of the people of God in the church is powerful. What else has God said about the church? It will be the source of his praise in all generations, again in Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Did you hear that? The glory will be in the church and in Christ Jesus for all time. The church, the bride of Christ. And that's what's next, right? The church is called no less than the beautiful, lovely, pure bride of Christ. And all of history is progressing toward the consummation and a marriage feast of the church in Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And on he goes. All right, so let me wrap this up. There is much more that needs to be said. The church, as you understand by these scriptures, is not superfluous. She is not unnecessary. She is the means of God working out his salvation in this world. She is the very bride of Christ 
Christ awaits the day of consummation. She is the location of, the church is the location of Christ's voice in this world. She is the household of those who have been adopted into the house of God. She is the pillar and foundation of all truth. Eh. Eh. <laughs> would, you, would you want to be outside of that? <laughs> Should we disregard and cast off what God put in place? for the triumph of his gospel, the strengthening and and sanctification of his people? Is there some, now, why preach on this? Is there some rejiggering of your thoughts about the church that must, must take place in your own head to bring them in line with what Jesus Christ has said about his church, his beloved bride? Do you take the church as unnecessary, superfluous, her ministry for granted, I can get these things elsewhere. Do you think there's some of that in you? And the answer is there is. You're American. You're American. Do you keep yourself aloof from the church? From the church's leaders that God has raised up to keep watch over your souls? Do you keep yourself aloof from the other members of your household, which you, by God's miracle, have been adopted into. Why would you do that? And now I'm like, okay, let's get really practical. The way you do that is never coming to a Tuesday night women's Bible study. Okay. Off my high horse. There are ministries of this church and it's ministries of the church for this particular local manifestation of God's church that are neglected by you. And I know why. I know precisely why. You just got more important things to do. You've made, I mean, you think this is important. I guarantee everybody in here thinks the ministries of the church are important. But you have more important things. Non-church things. (sighs) The bride of Christ. So here's the test. Here are the three tests. The three tests and whether or not you have higher priorities than the church. Do you pray for the church? Do you pray for the members of the church? Are you praying for the reformation of the church? Do you pray for the church? Prayer is an indication of what you think is important. If you haven't once said a prayer for this body, you don't think this body is important. There are some of you who pray every day, continuously, all the time for this church, and it's the reason it hasn't collapsed to the ground. I'm so thankful for it. The other thing is, of course, and this is, this is, not, this is a life lesson. This doesn't necessarily uh, just only apply to this, but time and money. Whatever you give your time and money to is what you think is important. So if you, if, uh, do you tithe? 
Do you split your tithe up? You know, parachurch, missionaries, church gets sort of the, the leftovers. I was taught when I was an early Christian that the tithe is the church's tithe. You give 10% of your gross income before taxes to the church. And it has been hurting since I ever learned that lesson, right? Oh, man. It's been hurting like giving that. But then on the other hand, it's like, no, I'm going to love the church. This is my way to love the church. And then time. Time is the other thing. What do you spend your time on, right? What, and what was wonderful is we had a little fellowship gathering and tons of people were there at the booths. And I was like, yes, this is people loving the church. Maybe they just wanted chili, but I don't care. I don't care. We were together. And it was wonderful. It was good. You know? So time, prayer, money. I don't know. You guys can beat me up after this one. But I love the church. You ought to love the church. The church should be a higher priority than your children's sport teams. You know? Your children ought to have to make sacrifices that other kids have because you're like, no, we're church people. We go to church. Yeah, I know, prayer meeting, it's hard to stay attention, it's hard to stay awake, but, but over time, you will come to appreciate the prayers of God's people and you'll be encouraged by it. Or, you know, maybe it would be better that they make it to the Premier League. No, it would not. To believe that prayer is powerful or to play for a Premier League team? It's not a comparison, right? So the church, the church, the church is the household of God. The church should be the center of the Christian's life. The church should be what our affections run toward. And obviously by saying church, I'm saying a lot of things. I'm saying the people of the church, the ministries of the church, the leaders of the church, the society, the fellowship, the accountability of the church, but Christ's church, this local body.